Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is episode 261. 261. So, let's talk about Elon Musk, Twitter, and rigged elections. Twitter, Elon Musk, and rigged elections. So, as everybody who doesn't live under a rock knows, uh, Elon Musk, uh, with a good deal of drama and toing and froing and back and forthing, successfully bought Twitter for some 40-odd billion dollars. And he went into Twitter and has been uh, cleaning house. He fired a bunch of people. Twitter kept on running despite those people being gone. And he has started to release in different uh, batches uh, some of the internal uh, documentation that he has discovered that documents how corrupt Twitter had become. And how they had basically lied through their teeth. They, they said that they didn't shadow ban conservatives on the basis of their politics. Turns out they did. They suppressed the Hunter Biden story. And this is significant because, as we heard a number of times, if Twitter's a private company and they can, make, um, they can um, set the rules for uh, what gets published on their platform, right? But even there, actually, this, that, that was in the old dispute. Back when conservatives were complaining about the possibility of the shadow banning, the, the people being thrown into Twitter jail, people being, uh, having their accounts suspended and so forth. Conservatives would complain about this, and liberals would say, it's a private company. They can do what they want, right? Well, there's a, different, there's a difference between a platform and a publisher. A platform and a publisher. And what Facebook and what Twitter were wanting to do is they were back in those days, they were wanting to have it both ways. They wanted to have the immunities of a platform and they wanted to have the uh, privileges of a publisher. So if, um, if I write an article and send it into the Atlantic, they have no, they're under no obligation whatever, to publish my piece. If I write a letter to the editor, to the New York Times, they're under no obligation to publish uh, what I write, to have published by them. So uh, that is the publisher's prerogative. The publisher gets to uh, print what he wants. But that means that the publisher is responsible for what he prints, right? So if, if um, uh, I'm the proprietor of Blog and Mayblog, if I publish something, there and I decide to let it run, and let's say it's slanderous or you know there's something wrong with it, then I bear responsibility for that thing. Whatever whatever is published by me, whatever is okayed by me, I'm responsible for. But AT&T or other you know phone uh, companies or are not responsible for the content of things that are said in phone conversations between individuals. They're just a vehicle or a platform for people to communicate. So if you set up a big electronic town hall and some crank gets up and says something crazy, 
the sponsors of the town hall are not responsible for what he said because they're just a platform. But that means, if since you're not responsible, that means you have to let people talk. In you know, when they form up, they form a line behind the mic. You let them talk. They you let them say their piece. So that's the way it used to be. Uh, that's how the liberals had their thumb on the scale back then. Now that Elon Musk has bought Twitter and everybody's freaking out because he's revealing how um, how much they were lying, how seriously they were lying about it, uh, people are kind of upset, you know? And so what does this have to do with elections? Well, one of the things it turns out is the October surprise or the that came from the Republicans in 2020 was the uh, Hunter Biden laptop story. The New York Post had a thoroughly researched article exposing uh, Hunter Biden had left his laptop at a computer repair shop and uh, and had then neglected to go back and get it. And the proprietor of the computer repair shop finally, after the time was up, checked it out and found out found all sorts of incriminating things on the laptop from Hunter Biden. And, um, and so it was going to be published. The New York Post published it. And then the government talked to Twitter and said, hey, uh, this is probably uh, Russian disinformation. And Twitter suppressed it. Okay. Now, even under the old rules, if Twitter had the right to suppress it, that's okay. And that's not necessarily a First Amendment violation. It might be, uh, might be bigoted, it might be prejudiced, it might be biased, but I'm, my First Amendment rights are not violated when a publishing house you know, sends me a rejection slip. But if the thing is not published at the behest of the government, if the government is the one behind the scenes pulling the strings to make sure that this story damaging to a preferred candidate, in that case, uh, Biden, that really, that does enter First Amendment territory. That is a violation of the constitutional rights of the New York Post. So this has been demonstrated. I mean, uh, Elon Musk bought the company, opened the files. This is all beyond dispute. This is all true. This is what happened. And the thing that I want to um, point out about it is that proof, we live in an era, we live in a time where proof does not matter. It does not matter. We are that polarized. And when you're that polarized and proof does not matter, what that means is that everybody is on the cusp of civil war. Everybody's ready to go get their gun. Because what would it, I mean, what would it take to prove that the 2020 presidential election was rigged? Suppose uh, we get a smoking gun tape where the CEOs of Google and Facebook and Twitter are found, are, are heard chortling and laughing about how we, we've totally got this. We're totally going to suppress the election. We're going to crush democracy under our collective thumb. Bwah, ha, ha, ha. Let's say somebody found that tape. We are at the point now where that wouldn't matter. A lot of people would just simply remain on the same side. Right? They'd just be, and they'd double down in their anger. So 
what are you going to do? Well, we don't have anything that we can do at this point except watch the gaudy spectacle and hope that God is kind to us. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 261, as we work our way through the New Testament vocabulary of sin, we come to exuthaneo, which is rendered as despised or despise. We have a number of examples. Jesus told a parable about a self-righteous man who trusted in himself. The consequence of this is that he despised other people. This is in Luke 18.9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So, this parable is told to those who trust in themselves, thinking themselves to be righteous, and they despised others. This is the besetting sin of the self-righteous. Then in Paul's discussion of Adiaphora in Romans 14, he warns us against this supercilious attitude. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So there, we're talking about the uh, stronger brother who feels free to eat any meat or feels free to eat anything without fear of spiritual contamination. And Paul says in that passage that the weaker brother eats only vegetables. So Paul says the stronger brother here is the one who is in danger of despising the weaker brother. Let not him that eateth, he's the stronger brother, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. It's easier for stronger people to despise weak people than the other way around. And so this is the way Paul says it. Uh, Paul also cautions the Corinthians against the temptation to despise Timothy. Uh, we, we don't know why they might uh, be tempted to despise him. Perhaps it was his age, maybe it's his height, maybe it's the, I don't know, tenor of his voice. But in 1 Corinthians sixteen eleven, it says, Let no man therefore despise him, speaking of Timothy. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me. For I look for him with the brethren. So don't despise Timothy. It must also have been easy to show contempt towards certain gifts of the Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.20 says, despise not prophesyings. Despise not prophesyings. Now, I suspect, I, I can't prove this, but I suspect that this is the same sort of thing that Michael was guilty of when she looked out the window, Michael, David's wife, and saw him dancing before the Lord, and she had contempt for him in her heart and despised him. So, despise not prophesying. If someone is in the grip of the Spirit's work, it can be, um, they can say and do things that are socially unsettling, and Paul says, don't despise that. In the KJV, another translation for the same word is to set at naught, to set at naught. Herod's men sinned this way against Jesus. This is in Luke 23, 11. And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught. They despised him. They set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. So this is Herod and his men of war. Set him at naught. They despised him and they mocked him. Uh, Here's another one, Acts 4.11. The Jews who rejected Christ sinned in exactly the same way that Herod's men did. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, or uh, as other translations put it, the stone which the builders rejected. The stone which the builders rejected. 
This is the stone which was set at naught of you believers, excuse me, of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And then, what the enemies of Christ did to Christ, Herod and the Jews, we must take care to avoid in how we treat Christ in our brothers. This is Romans 14.10, again the Adiaphora chapter. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Herod should not have done what he did when he despised Christ. Herod's men of war should not have despised Christ. The Jews should not have despised the cornerstone. And we ought not to despise those who are those who look to Christ as their elder brother. God don't never change. He's God. So coming to our book review uh, section, the book I'm reviewing this time is a really interesting one. It's called Foundations of a Moral Government. Foundations of a Moral Government. And it's written by a, a gent last name of Milton. Not, not John Milton, but another Milton. Uh, what this book is, is basically a summary of Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex. Now, Canon Press just recently uh, republished um, some uh, books in the, in the vein of Protestant resistance theory. One of them was uh, Vindicii Contra Tyrannos, A Vindication Against Tyrants by Junius Brutus, and Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Now, Samuel Rutherford was a very great genius, a staggering genius. He was a great preacher, a great theologian. He was one of the one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster uh, to the Westminster Assembly, and his letters, the letters of Sam, Samuel Rutherford, have um, been inspirational for centuries. They they are pious, devout inspirational, lofty. They're, they're just really great. So, um, the, his, you can get his letters and read through all the letters. There is a distillation of some of the ri- juiciest or the ripest or the, the best quotes from the letters of Samuel Rutherford, and that uh, uh, is published by Community Christian Ministries, CCM, uh, under the title, The Loveliness of Christ. So, the lovel- loveliness of Christ consists of excerpts from Rutherford's letters, okay? And they are very heartwarming. They're just great. If you say, if you turn from, oh, I read his letters and, and they were so inspiring, I'm going to um, I'm going to read something else he wrote. And you pick up Lex Rex and you find yourself underneath a rock pile of dense theological, political, cultural reasoning uh, with Rutherford jumping freely and easily between different languages without bothering to translate, whether Hebrew or Greek or, you know, just doing his thing. You say, man, what's going on here? <laughs> this, you, you would be tempted uh, if you applied uh, the principles of text criticism to, say, to answer the question, were the, Samuels, were the letters of Samuel Rutherford and Lex Rex written by the same man? Well, one of the things we discover in this is that men of genius can oftentimes do more than one thing. And, and we should remember that when we are looking at texts of Scripture, and some modern scholar pronounces this is clearly the work of a different, a different writer. But the point is, for the modern reader, Lex Rex is, Lex Rex is a foundational book 
in Protestant resistance theory when it comes to when is it right for citizens to say no to a tyrannical, overreaching government? When is that okay? And Samuel Rutherford is, a, is part of that tradition of Protestant resistance theory, and it's really, I commend it to you. But if you heed this commendation and you pick the book up, you're going to say, I need help. I need an instructor. So what this book, Foundations of a Moral Government, is, is a chapter-by-chapter summary of Lex Rex. So what you can do is you can read, if you want to read Lex Rex, you can just read the summary, sort of like a Cliff's Notes for 17th century Protestant resistance theory. Just read the summary. Or you could read a chapter and then read the summary. Uh, Milton does a good job just capturing what uh, Rutherford was up to in each particular chapter, and he records it for you. And, um, and there you go. Foundations of a Moral Government by Milton.